In the mid-1600s, Blaise Pascal, a mathematician, philosopher, all-around brilliant uh, French guy, uh, put forth this notion uh, that within all of us uh, is an emptiness, a void, uh, something that he referred to as a God-shaped hole in the human heart. Uh, He was saying we are uh, incomplete, that within all of us there is this terrifying crater that we have that only God can fill. And he was likely drawing uh, from the great African theologian, St. Augustine, who said that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. And so what this means is that we have this hole within us that we try to fill with all sorts of temporary and unsatisfying things. The things that are often in themselves good. Uh, People, possessions, pleasure, power, popularity, but all of these created things are insufficient to fill the great chasm in our hearts. Try as we might, it still leaves us incomplete. And so what this means is this God-shaped hole says, that, says this about us, that, every, that each and every single one of us is naturally, by default, empty and unsettled and chaotic within. Welcome to church. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Uh, About a month ago, we started a a new series, and what we've been doing um, for the last few weeks is we've been unpacking a couple of verses from the New Testament letter to Galatians, Galatians being the first century letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians who lived in what is now present-day Turkey. And we've been looking at Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, and these two verses describe the way that God begins to transform us into the likeness of Jesus and how he continues that work in us for the rest of our lives. And these two verses are frequently referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. And when we hear fruit, that's, of course, figurative language. And we're speaking of a singular fruit, uh, the virtues, the qualities that are brought about by the Spirit of God in the people of God. Something that, that comes about in our life through the power of God as we believe in Christ and as we trust in Him. And he lists nine distinct aspects of the fruit Uh, we'd expect to be associated with God's people, and we're looking at each one of them in turn. Thus far, we've looked at love and joy, and this morning we're going to consider something that we don't see much of today. Uh, It's kind of elusive these days. It's kind of like looking for a needle in a a haystack. It's this little one-word syllable that shows up about 330 times in the Bible, And while it's all over the pages of Scripture, uh, you don't find much of it on the pages of the newspaper. Uh, You don't see it as you scroll online. We often don't feel it within. We ache for it in our relationships, but it often just seems out of reach. It's a word we all like. No one dislikes the word, uh, but it's a word that we don't uh, often experience in a deep and meaningful way. And that word is peace. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And I know as I was uh, preparing this week, I was, I, was, uh, I was reminded of an article that I, I read in The Atlantic a few months ago. Um, the article was titled, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. Uh, 
quite a, a memorable title, but the, the article is quite sobering because what the article um, is is a, is a stark picture of what's happened, according to this author's view, in our country, in our culture over the past 10 years. And the article was written by Jonathan Haidt, and he's a, a social psychologist, a professor in New York. And Haidt, he isn't a Christian, he's ethnically Jewish and a self-declared religiously atheist person. But what's really fascinating about the article is he, is he starts with a biblical account. He opens his article with, a, 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 with, with, a, with the words from Genesis chapter 11 and the historical account of what we see in the Bible known as the Tower of Babel. This story of how the descendants of, of Noah, they began to build this tower. They, they wanted to build this massive tower into the heavens, says Scripture, so that they can make a name for themselves. And God sees what they're doing, and so he comes down and he mixes up all of their languages. He disrupts the building project. They're now speaking different languages. They can't understand one another, and so they scatter and they move throughout the earth. And Professor Haidt, he, he uses this account of the Tower of Babel because he says this is a picture of what's happened in our country. And this is a quote from his article. He says, the story of Babel is the best metaphor I've found for what happened to America in the 2010s and for the fractured country we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong, very suddenly. We're disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. And he, and he goes on to describe kind of what, what, what factors have added into this. And he talks about the rise of various forms of social media, the increased uh, tribalism that we experience with politics, and just various uh, advances in, in technology. And, and you read things in that quote like fractured disoriented, cut off from one another as, as descriptors of the, of the current state of things. And all of those words and phrases are the very opposite of this word peace. And when we hear this word peace, I think we often think of it just as, the, just as an absence of conflict. So, so if we're in a neutral state with another person or another country, it's like there's peace there. But when we open the Bible, we actually see peace as something much more than just the absence of conflict. We actually see a state of wholeness, of how things should be. And so we're going to jump around a bit in the Bible uh, this morning. We're going to touch on a number of different uh, passages as we seek to understand uh, from a biblical perspective biblical perspective of this word peace. More specifically, what does peace look like for a follower of Jesus, especially in the midst of a fractured and disoriented world and country that we're really living in right now? And as I say, I don't think we really have the greatest understanding of peace. It's usually reductive. As I say, typically in English, we see peace just in negative terms. It's what we don't have, you know, right? It's when we don't have drama. It's when we, it's when we don't have war. We don't have conflict. And that's true partially, but it's an incomplete picture of peace. We think if I can just simply remove this irritation from work, if I, can, if I can take the conflict out of my marriage, if I can eliminate worry over my finances, if I can finally figure out what I'm going to do after graduation, I will have peace. And those things are helpful, but that's not completely true. See, the Bible has a much bigger and much more positive 
view of peace. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew understanding comes from the word shalom. And yes, that means peace, but it's a much, a much deeper word that also speaks of wholeness, of being, of being complete, the idea of flourishing and permanence, not just removing chaos from the void, but adding into it, filling it up with what is good, health, prosperity, even God himself. And in the New Testament, of, of the Greek words that are translated into peace, the most common is irene. Uh, irene sh- shows up about a hundred times in the New Testament, and it's used uh, by all, all but one of the New Testament writers. And, and it's actually where we get the word uh, ironic. You, you've heard those two words, ironic and polemic. Uh, the ironic person is someone who seeks peace and seeks unity, and a polemic person is really uh, a person who just just you know creates division and disunity right like much of the out uh, you know much of this outrage culture that we live in right now I believe is really is due to very polemical people who just want to stir up controversy want to stir up division rather than bring peace as a noun peace can speak to tranquility in the mind and the heart And as a verb, it can mean to bind together. Bind together what might be split apart, torn apart. You bind it together so that there's no space in between. God and people, people and people, and even no rupture within our our very own hearts. So, So taking all of Scripture, biblical peace means to be made whole or complete. We see this as we, I mean, we see this as we view eternity, right? We where physically and relationally and spiritually we're made whole. Uh, we also see a glimpse of this in Jesus' own ministry. He spoke the same words to two different women who approached him on two different uh, occasions. In one case, the woman came, a woman came to him who was suffering from internal bleeding chronically. And then another woman who who was this notorious sinner, came to him during a dinner party. She sought him out. And, the, and he said the same thing after they both came to him. He healed one. He forgave the other. He said to both of them, go in peace. Go complete. Go whole. They came empty, broken, and shamed. They left filled, forgiven, and dignified. They came deficient, and they left complete. And, and this is what I'm getting at, and this is our task for this morning. There are these different dimensions to peace, and our goal this morning is for us to have a more complete picture of the peace that we are to experience as followers of Jesus. And, and for you list takers this morning, I've got you covered. We've got one, two, three, four points all for you about what this true and complete peace involves and looks like in our lives. And so let's start with at number one, a great place to start, true and complete peace involves vertical peace. Of course, this is peace with God above. Peace begins here. See, by the end of Galatians, Paul has been very clear about salvation, what it is, what it isn't, where it comes from. It doesn't come from obeying the law. It doesn't come from moral improvement. By by grace alone, we receive this gift when we put our faith in Jesus, his sacrificial death. Paul, in fact, would, would go so far as to say that we are foolish and we are bewitched if we think we can be saved any other way 
than coming to Jesus in faith. We can't climb our way up to God, and so he came down to us. And in Romans, he's very concise. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's a legal term. It's It's a legal judgment. You're not guilty. You're exonerated in a court of law. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God, vertical peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died in our place for our sins. The punishment, the debt, the penalty, it was taken care of by him. God's wrath directed at our sin, it was punished in the person of Jesus. And this means if you're resting in and relying upon the provision offered in the Lord Jesus, then God the Father is not mad at you. He doesn't hold your sins over your head. But even more, he begins to fill that hole in our hearts. See, he doesn't just take away the sin and the bad, but he fills it. He fills it with grace and with love and with mercy and with acceptance and so on. And so this is why we can't reduce salvation to this like, you know, eternal you know, fire insurance card. Like, oh, we get to, to spend eternity in the air conditioned section. That, you know, that's nice. Well, it is. But there's more to it. It means that we get God himself. And our God is a God of peace. And if you get him, you get the God of peace. 1 Corinthians 14, for God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. And so while we do struggle, and we struggle in in many ways on this side of eternity, we can rest assured knowing that we have a position that will never be disturbed, even if our condition gets worse. Because of the one who's secured it for us. And that reality fills us. And it leads us to the second aspect of true and complete worship. Which involves not just vertical peace. But horizontal peace as well. We're supposed to be people of horizontal peace. You see there are other relationships between, besides the one we have with God. And we're supposed to be so filled up with something that necessarily it will spill over into others. I mean, think about it. God is, is perfect. He's never wronged us. We wronged him. We sinned against him. And yet he makes peace with us. So who are we to live in disunity and antagonism with anyone? Now, the context here in Galatians 5, a few verses earlier, Paul is warning the people in Galatia against biting and devouring one another. And and, and I'm glad that that is a dated thing that Christians have got over a long time ago. But just go with me here. Use your imagination. We're supposed to be people of peace, not spiritual cannibals. John Lewis, the civil rights leader who was threatened and brutalized multiple times, It says, none of us can rest, be happy, be at home, or be at peace within ourselves until we end hatred and division. So it doesn't matter who we're dealing with. It doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't matter whether or not we see them as moral. We're to pursue peace, even even when we feel wronged. Uh, When Peter was writing to the the, the, the scattered Christians who were, who were hiding from severe persecution, they were fearing for their lives. Into that, Peter says this to them, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, 
because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For, and he then quotes from the Old Testament, whoever desires to love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn away from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. He's talking about horizontal peace, binding up the gaps that, that are adversarial between us. Now, I wonder if we have a reputation for being characterized this way, especially with those who, that are unaffiliated with the faith. There was a, a Barna study, uh, a Barna study a few years ago. Barna is a Christian survey group, and they did a, they did a study back in 2019. Remember 2019? Those happy days when the, the, the sky was blue all the time and snozberries taste like snozberries? Like, you know, before all of the chaos of 2020, when we lost, all lost our collective minds? Well, back then, they did a study. I'm sure, it's no, I'm sure it's a lot worse even now. But they did a study looking to explain the increased disfavor of Christianity in society. They were looking to explain why some of us, even from time to time, myself included, have an issue with the term evangelical because of the baggage that goes with it. And these are some of the terms, some of the language that came out of the, came, uh, out of the results of the study. Judgmental. Holier than thou, uncompassionate, blindly partisan, nationalistic. And this implies not just a lack of wisdom and humility, a lack of empathy and understanding, approachability, but that we are viewed as people fixated on the specks in the eyes of others more than the planks in our own. Um, I recently heard a woman speak um, as she told her story, and, and she talked about uh, growing up in an abusive home, uh, no love, no affirmation, yet a home that called themselves people of God. And so by the time she was an adolescent, you, you can imagine that God-shaped hole was even bigger, right? It was a large, large hole, so predictably... She fell for one of the first boys that noticed her. And about the time that she should have been getting her driver's license, she was pregnant. Now what happened, and mind you, this is after she saw the child as a gift, kept the child. Her parents shamed her. The boy left her. And what's interesting she is she was attending a Christian school. She she was learning about Jesus. She said she was drawn to Jesus because Jesus in the Scripture seems so merciful, especially to the sinners, to the downtrodden, to those who are morally fatigued, to the people who, who know they need it. This, this guy, oh, there's something to him. Her school asked her to leave. They kicked her out because they saw her as a moral failure and as a bad influence on everyone else. And as a result, you may not be surprised, she took multiple decades off of church. Scott Sauls says that it's not uncommon for people to shoot the message, to reject the message, to shoot the message because of the behavior of the messengers. My point in bringing this up is simply this, that how we treat people matters. It doesn't matter if we think them to, to be righteous or not. 
inside or outside the family of faith. And it doesn't even matter how they treat us or how we might think they treat us. We've got to take pains in pursuing horizontal peace. There are so many people, and I know some of you uh, know this in your own life, there are so many people that are going to need to feel like they genuinely belong before they can get to a place where they will legitimately believe. I mean, think about this. The scripture says, even while we were still God's enemies, when we were sinners, Romans 5, Christ died for us. And that his kindness leads us to repentance, Romans 2. I mean, Paul will go on in Ephesians 2. I mean, we could, we could literally do this all day. There's so much of it in Scripture. Paul says that Jesus is our peace. So true and complete peace involves vertical peace with God, horizontal peace with one another. But, but it's not supposed to be just, you know... I, I, you know, ideas just on a page are out there. It's supposed to be in the heart as well. And so this brings us to the third aspect of true and complete peace, and that is an inner peace as well. So I think this inner peace, this peace of the soul, is the sort of peace that Paul has in mind in Galatians 5 when he's speaking of the fruit of the Spirit. This is the, the, the peace experienced in our, in our hearts. This is the internal calm. This is the serenity within, even when the chaos rages outside of you. The, the, this tranquility of mind that comes from being aware of God's presence and God's promises. I say, Isaiah says this to God, you will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace. He doesn't say, keep the person who's just got great circumstances in perfect peace. The mind that is dependent on you will be kept in perfect peace, for he is trusting in you. Peace is not this cute idea that we throw on the back of a bumper sticker. It's supposed to be a lived experience in our hearts. Let's go back to Pascal's God-shaped hole for a moment. The idea that, that we ultimately what we ultimately depends on shapes our well-being. We're, we're all depending on something. It's just a matter of what. And this is the kind of peace described in the famous hymn, uh, written by Horatius Spafford in the 1870s. Many of you know the story, I'm sure. The context, for those of you who don't, Spafford lives in the United States. He's a lawyer, very involved in the church, um, in church leadership, and his family was going to travel to England, and so his wife and four daughters get on a steamer. They head out. He stays back to take care of some business. Um, he's going to follow on another ship. But tragically, there's, a, there's trouble at sea, and the ship sinks. And Spafford receives a telegram uh, message from his wife, saved alone. He loses his four girls. And in the thick of that gut-wrenching tragedy, the, in that chaos, that is ob an objectively terrible situation. That's when he penned the song, It is well with my soul. Opening lines, when peace like a river attendeth my way. Here's the contrast, when sorrows like sea billows roll, and that ocean imagery is powerful in light of his experience. Whatever my lot, that was taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Whether the external circumstances are good, the waters are calm and the skies are blue, or whether, whether they are horrible and the, waters, uh, the waves are choppy and the skies are dark, it is well with my soul. God's presence and promises that transcend the circumstances. They taught him that no matter what, it could be well with his soul. 
Now listen, when Jesus spoke to the disciples about receiving the Spirit, the context, the timing is pretty jarring. I mean, he's about to die, betrayed, sham trial, executed shamefully at the hands of the state. And their lives following that are going to know more of the same. All but one of them will die unnatural deaths. And the one who, who does survive had to survive boiling in a vat of oil. That's what they had ahead of them. And Jesus says to them, peace I leave with you. He doesn't say wealth, popularity, cultural domination I leave. No. Peace. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is a unique kind of internal, internal peace. This is a, a comfort that's given by the Spirit of Jesus that calms in the chaos. It fills the void when all indications suggest that we should panic and lose hope. An unexpected medical diagnosis. Uncertainty about the future. The loss of a job. The breach of trust in a marriage. Those are all situations that people go through, regardless of what you believe, regardless of your salvation. Those things could be on your doorstep tomorrow morning. And in, in, it's in these situations that we need to be reminded of his peace promised to us in the Bible. It's not just justification before God. That's a huge thing. But it's not just this eternal thing that's far away. It is available to us today. Not because of our circumstances, oftentimes in spite of them. And, and how do we get this kind of peace? Well, there seems to be two ingredients. The first is pretty straightforward. It's a gift that we're given when we first come to Christ, when we first believe. The divine counselor, the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. And the second seems to be this difficult, ongoing process of walking with him, trusting in him, that, that we would have more hope in this eternal person, his promises and presence, than we would the temporary things that, we can, that can so easily be gained or lost. We, we need to grapple with this idea that, that deep in our hearts, whether we realize it or not, we have a hole. And we all believe something will will fill it. We, we, we all finish this sentence in one way or another. I'll be at peace if I have fill in the blank. What circumstances do you want? More money? A better job? A spouse? A life of comfort? I'll be okay. I'll be at peace if so let, let, let's take some inventory here. I know, I know we're at church, but let's face the, the music. Let's be honest with ourselves. Not something that we're always known for in church, but what do you focus your time and energy on? Like when your imagination wanders, where does your mind go? Your deepest fears, the things that you are most afraid of losing, that will tell you what you're trying to stuff in that hole. For instance, in my own life, I mean, we could be here all day uh, dealing with just the stuff in my life, but I, I've seen, for instance, my peace to serve when I address hard topics. Because here's the thing, a person who says challenging things into a microphone is an easy mark for fault finders. Passive-aggressive comments, 
usually with scripture taken out of context. Emails from people that I, I, I would hope I would have hoped to have been eager learners. I mean, man, they can be real bucket dippers. But what I see, when we trust in counterfeit sources of ultimate peace, whether it's health or reputation or whatever, that short circuits our joy. That robs us of peace. Because what is temporary, what is fickle, won't fill that God-sized, God-shaped eternal hole in our hearts, whether it's wealth or health or beauty or status or pleasure, it's all dust in the wind, so says Solomon. So what's the solution for us? Well, peacemaking. We need to be about making peace. You see, true and complete peace involves vertical peace, horizontal peace, inner peace, and finally, peacemaking. In other words, peace is our purpose. Because what's interesting about peace is it's not just a a description. It's not just a positive state of of being. But in Scripture, it's also commanded. Peace is commanded. Like, like we think that commands are weighty things like don't murder, don't commit adultery. Okay, note to self, not going to do that. But, But it's also commanded. Making peace. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The children of God make peace. He doesn't say, blessed are the people who can define it. Blessed are the people who can talk about it. But he says, blessed are those who can make peace. We're supposed to be about it. Later on in chapter 5, as he ends Matthew 5, he's going to say, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. No, no, love your enemies. Because you know what he did to us when we were his enemies? He made us his friends. He loved us. So this is a this is audacious. And, and if we're honest, if we get off the bumper sticker for a minute, like this is hard to do. Because the road to interpersonal peace with, with, with one another, even within the church, is often bumpy. Like Sonoma County roads, not great. I mean, we've just, over the past few years, we've, we've been through a lot of things that people have strong opinions over. COVID-19. Politics, vaccines, social justice, mask mandates. And it's not wrong to have convictions about those things, but when those convictions lead to division instead of peace, especially within the church, we have to wrestle with why that is. Because as followers of Jesus, our responsibility is to be proactive when it comes to peace. We see this very clearly in Romans 12, 18, where Paul says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. We're called not, you know, not to be passive here, but to be proactive, to be initiative takers when it comes to seeking peace. And this can be hard. It can be hard to, to, to be the bigger person and to forgive when we've been wronged. It's hard to swallow your pride and, and apologize when you're in the wrong. It's hard to show people honor when you don't feel they've shown you honor. Creating peace is not for the faint of heart. Eleanor 
uh, Roosevelt, it, was, it isn't enough to talk about peace, one must believe in it. And it isn't enough to believe in it, one must work at it. Now, I know we're a gospel-focused, you know, we're gospel-focused Christians here, and, and sometimes when we talk about work and spirituality, and you do talk, you know, we start to panic. So I'll be clear, we don't work for our salvation, but in Philippians it says we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. In Ephesians, Paul says that we are to make every effort to keep the bond of peace, the unity of peace. So I wonder what it might look like for us to experience this kind of biblically described peace in a meaningful way. Well, vertically, let's start there. We, we need to receive the gracious offer that God has made to us, the forgiveness of sins. When we do that, we have, Romans 5, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And even if we don't feel it, we still have it. God fills the chasm between us and him and begins to fill our hearts along the way. And, 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 and what he does is he gives us the architecture inside. He gives us the social architecture for more peace. And, and then we're able to horizontally, we're called to, to make relational peace. And yes, even civic peace. Consider your friends and your, your family, your school, your, your place of employment, your wider community. How can you pass on what you have received from God? I mean, back to 1 Peter, how, how do we turn away from evil? Turn away, he says, from evil and do good. Well, maybe we need to put away the bad. Maybe there are some toxic inputs in your life. Maybe there's that cable news pundit, that Twitter handle that is just drumming up culture war and selling ads. Maybe we just need to, to put that away and be done with that. Maybe we need to put on the good. Maybe what we need to do is to forgive someone, bless someone, pray for them. You, you could kindly, uh, is there someone you could kindly check in on? Like right now, trust me, I would not be offended if you all pull out your phones and you start scrolling through your contacts list and saw someone struggling, someone that you could check in and you just said, hey, thinking of you today. Because we should be about this. What areas, oh, or organization in our, in our community, could you volunteer uh, for and serve and, and, and do so, bringing peace into our world? I mean, Jesus said, we're, we're the salt and the light. We could be about that. We're about here inside Redeemer. Like, there are so many areas of need that you could come along in, in support of your brothers and sisters. For instance, we have real need in our children's ministry, and you could come alongside others and take these little kids, and you can help form them into little peacemakers so that they don't, they don't out, you know, end up all grouchy like the rest of us. We restart them young. We also need to work at inner peace, right? Think about the agricultural picture that Paul is using here. If you've got a bowl of fruit at home, big, ripe, juicy peach in it, and, 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 and you've got some, you know, rumbly in the tumbly, you, you, know, what, you know what to do, don't you? You seize it. You grab it. You take a bite. See, our job is not to passively know about and partially talk about some theological idea. It's to partake. It's to be the farmer that's going to cultivate the orchard and, 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 and we would, that we would invest time regularly in to enjoy, I don't know, the God of the universe. Do this and hopefully you have a few 
of these moments throughout the week as you're reflecting, but dial up what is plaguing your soul most right now. What is stealing your peace? Maybe it's a face. Maybe it's an email you received. Maybe it's, it's news from the doctor. I don't know what it is. Bring that to mind. And hold that intention with a few action words that I'm going to read to you. This is Paul, Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, and, and, and that includes every situation, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, the way that you're thinking about it, the way that your bad coping mechanisms are not giving you peace, that transcends and surpasses that, he says. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When you're empty, when your peace is gone, talk to God about it. Pray to him, petition to him, because he has a way of filling the void the way our circumstances never could hope to. Let's not leave that fruit uneaten. Let's not leave it going bad on the counter. Let's pursue the kind of life, the kind of habits and disciplines that make this kind of inner peace attainable on the regular. And I think for a lot of us, we're busy, our lives are fast, and it just means to slow yourself down Turn down the noise and let the inner witness of the Spirit intersect with the unchanging eternal truths of Scripture. And watch that. Watch the the fullness of God fill the emptiness that we all experience. You know what? You may not be getting the circumstances that you want. Just a newsflash. But you're going to get the reassurances that you need. You'll get the God of peace. So you're going to get the peace of God.